Here we are again. So please um, feel free to yes. I like the handing, it's nice, it just kind of, everybody gets to touch it at least. Yes, it's the pause. So don't feel you have to rush to get it to the next person. Ajahn, it's a question about this, um, we talk about uh, when um, animals suffer, we just put them to sleep, sort of, we put them down. And the question I have is like, when we think like, okay, the, if our dog is not well or if suffering from a cancer, then the question is whether do we have enough funds to uh, take him to the vet or let him just pass away as a natural death or just put him to sleep. And as a Buddhist, I mean, like, how does the karma affect in this context if you consent to the put him to death as a vet suggests you? Let me just start. Sure. Um, I I think that's an important reflection for us all, and and I think that's a a, a good way to to preface it a reflection. I don't know. I spoke earlier about the, this lovely little being that Catherine and I have, who I've thought a few times about here, who's home alone. We have people taking care of her, but she's pretty miserable when we're gone. And we come back, and she's all hoarse from crying, and we cuddle her, and then she cries for a day or two, letting us know that you've been away, and I haven't been happy. And, and you know, it's just kind of, don't have children, but I have a kitty cat. <laughs> so she kinda, and, and I really can't honestly say, I know we will reflect very carefully uh, if, you know, we outlive her in that day, when that day comes. Um, Karmically, I believe quite firmly, rather than strongly, I believe quite firmly that, that it is an intervention of some sort, that I'm making a choice to intervene with another being's karma, including my own. If I was to you know, commit suicide or, or assist Catherine with, or anyone for that matter. Um, and uh, so karmically, it's, it's hard to know. But I, I think the important thing, if I, that decision came, and we say had nursed her for maybe, I, I know I had a close friend, and he had a, 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 just the sweetest dog. And they nursed this little dog for quite some time. I mean, it couldn't take care of itself. It would, and, and so they had the hands-on care. It was tremendous. And I think there came a point that they actually, they did that. They kept it comfortable and cleaned up after it and everything. But I think they eventually did put it to sleep. But it seemed they had, had, had struck a nice balance between not just, oh, the first signs of the dog is obviously miserable and suffering, and let's just do the kindest thing, as, as uh, people like to say. And, and then actually at that point where, and, and, and only they can know what their decision was. So I think it's, it, it, it's taking that full responsibility for that and reflecting it's like the long pause really if we're talking about the pause it's like the pause and and of course the first reaction for a lot of all to put it out of its misery and as i was saying before whose misery are we trying to alleviate 
And I think that's a really, really important question because one's discomfort can be very powerful. And well, I don't want to see it suffer, but how much is that little being or the person whatever actually suffering? And then back to what right do I have to, as we have the expression, play God? And so I think these are very demanding reflections for us all. Yeah, I, um, I, I always, it always strikes me and I feel a, a, a jolt in myself when people use that kind of language like putting to sleep, uh, <laughs> taking care of, you know, the, the, the mind doesn't say, no, uh, in, we, we're talking about killing. And we use these euphemistic ways to make it easier on the, on the doer, but as far as the animal's concerned, they're dying. Uh, it's not sleep. Their, their life is being ended. And um, I feel it's... Uh, I grew up in a family of, of dog, lover, dog lovers and animal lovers, and uh, so I'm very well enmeshed in, in this realm. And uh, so I live with that a lot in my own family. And uh, I feel there's a responsibility that when someone sort of owns <laughs> a pet, you're, you're rather than uh, uh, and there being an owning, therefore, a right to command and to, to sort of control uh, <laughs> the life and death of that being, you're more realistically or more in actuality forming a relationship with another being. And um, you're, when you form that relationship, you, you take on certain responsibilities. So you, you get the cute little puppy. But you get there, and there's the kind of sweetness and their delight, and they're kind of, ah, hello. <laughs> daddy, you're home, you know, kind of that affection and uh, company. But also, you get the the whole of the rest of the package, as, we, as we've said numerous times on this this retreat. Also, the mindful aging weekend, we addressed this a few times. You, you, we, we get the whole package, and uh, this is one of the, the dilemmas of a human condition. We don't read the small print. <laughs> We don't realize what what comes with the package, and so we only want the the sort of the sweet bits. We don't want any of the difficulties in so many areas of our life. So my feeling is that when you form a bond with another being of that nature, then that that's a responsibility that you're taking. You're, you're forming a relationship, and so then, for better or for worse, to, to use the phrase, then I feel it's it's that's a commitment that you're making. And that um, uh, I would never condone anyone killing an animal, not just because it's my rules, but uh, I just don't. F I just don't feel comfortable in that way. Or that the, and not just to say casual, because I know people uh, think a, a lot or, or agonize a great deal over their their pets and their animals, and it's it's very difficult decisions to make. But still, um, I, I I feel that there's uh, is a lot more that when we accept the karma of forming that relationship, you, ex you should accept the whole thing, just like if that was your child. I remember one couple that I was spending time with in America who, who didn't have their own children. They had this, this cat um, called Panya, which is, means wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they, they uh, cared for this cat deeply. I mean, you couldn't really say more than if it was a child, <laughs> but certainly in an equal way. And that... Um, when the vet said to them, well, you know, how much do you want, when, when the, the cat was ailing and aging, the, and the vet said, well, how much do you want to spend? They just looked at him and said, are you seriously asking that question? 
yeah, really? Yeah. And uh, he said, yeah, well, that's my job. You know? <laughs> I want to know what extent of treatment you want to make. And they, they were just, and they were recounting this to me, how <coughs> they, it was inconceivable to them that they would say, well, this is a, a $10,000 cat, but it's not a $15,000 cat. I mean, could you say that for your child? No, none of us could. So um, I, I, don't, I don't wish to exaggerate it or, or come so across a, as a hard liner, but I feel it's really, when we form those bonds, we need to really consider <laughs> what we're taking on. When we bond our life to another being, just like with a marriage or a relationship or an ordination. <laughs> you know, that you, you, when you form those bonds, you, you, we need to consider what, what we're taking on and to just think it through and feel it through. Uh, before we before we make that kind of commitment, and so uh, uh, my uh, my sense is that that um, you know, if one does that, you know, and you really think it through, and and you you take that into consideration, then a lot of the and, and you really um, take responsibility for the relationship. Then those questions answer themselves as you go along, and, and, and every situation is unique. Every like every person is unique. Every being is unique. Every aspect of these relationships is, is unique and so you, you, there's no sort of formula that we can, we can follow but um, that um, I feel if one really takes to heart that sense of relatedness with another being and then um, uh, you, you know, and you use these kind of practices we've been talking about like learning to listen to your own heart, to draw on your own wisdom and then act from that, that place. Wait for the can I wait for the mic. Wait for the mic. What you have to say is very important. Uh, no matter what the way it is, it is the first precept of the Buddhist mm -hmm. rules that uh, not to kill animals. Mm -hmm. And I think, from my memory, there are five things which helps in determining that we want to assist in killing a being. Is, a, is as good as killing an animal. Don't it? Uh, there are five things, isn't it? I can't remember all five. Mm -hmm. But uh, to kill or to buy words to s assist that mm -hmm. is all. Is a. Uh, it's just as good as you're killing an animal. Mm -hmm. The uh, and it's also I think it's important to recognise it's not just because it's against the rule. <laughs> But because the Buddha's pointing out that the rule came from the karma, the karmic situation that he saw, that when, what you have to do to your heart to to close that down to kill another being, there's there's waves that you set in motion. There's this this karmic momentum that is set in motion in your life, and then obviously in the life of the the thing that the the being that's being killed. So that um, that he the, the precept is there as a as an effect of uh, the the wisdom mind seeing oh this is the the karma that comes from killing therefore you know precept number one <laughs> and so therefore this is the thing to to be most attentive to and, and cautious about and so that um, and, and respectful of and to and so when um, that kind of languaging is used like that doing you know doing the kindest thing or you know, putting to sleep uh, I think it's it's very helpful to 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 take a step back, to consider the precept, but also just consider 
in, in essence, your own, your own wisdom, your own uh, um, seeing that the karma that you're creating in, in either making that choice or, or, or not making that choice. You know, choosing to, to, to say, okay, now I'm going to be patient, I'm going to look after this being until their last breath. Whatever it takes, I'm going to do it. Because then that, that has a resonance for you in later years and it sets an example for others. Also, it's very much there in the mind of the being <laughs> that's on the receiving end of that. So there's all these different uh, elements that, that are in there. And so that, that the, um, it's not really regarding karma in any kind of metaphysical way, but just looking <laughs> at what happens to us. What, what, what is the, the effect on our, our mind, on our heart, if we choose to take a life? Okay. Um, Catherine had her hand there. Go ahead, Yogi, you're right there. And then just a quick comment. Right, yes. Okay. Quick this comment. Quick comment. Can I unring the bell I just rang? Right, okay. Um, it's really a Luampo story. <laughs> I'll let Ajahn Amaru say the story, the context, uh, colorfully later. But it's the time when he first came, and people here were not uh, uh, used to a summoner in society. They would ask him, what good is it you sitting there uh, contemplating your navel? What if your mother, somebody comes to kill your mother? <laughs> you know, the story we've often heard. But the, the last thing he said was, I, I, I still have that in, where he said, uh, <clears throat> um, if you have lived your life skillfully, the appropriate response will arise. And for me, I, I value that such a lot. I trust in that. And I, I feel it's, it's a karmic uh, response that will come. For me, karma and its consequences um, and rebirth as are true as Almighty God is true to the um, born-again Christian. <laughs> so I have trust and faith and confidence in that. So it's, it's this appropriate response will come at mm. that moment. Mm. That's, mm. Yeah, that's, a love, that's a lovely, lovely point. Yeah. Catherine? Well, I think some got it, but it was just... Basically, the you know I rang the bell and I can't unring the bell. Once the bell has been rung, you know I can't unring it. In other words, I can't take back that I just struck the bell. It rang. I can't say, oh, I want to unring it. It's it, it, it's it's kind of a foolish thought, isn't it? So like once something is done, can't undo that. Like the soldier that I know for sure that I was instrumental in killing, I can't undo that. You know, so so I have to live with it. So, if we're here in these in in present moment only moment consciousness, then we can choose how we ring the bell, or if we ring the bell or not. I wanted to follow uh, this up because how is this? Well, I I think it's different, but it, I struggle with this idea that. And Joseph and I have talked about this. Let's say. Uh, I would get cancer and I make a choice to to have treatment or not treatment. You know, making that in full conscious knowing that by not, then my life will end. It could end sooner. It could end, you know, whatever. 
And then also, too, the idea that uh, that when you do your wills and stuff, at least in the United States, you have advanced care directives, and it says you don't want extenuating circumstances. And Joseph and I talked about this. If I'm clear that that is not what I want, then I'm asking him, even if he disagrees with that at, at my demise, to honor that. So not to you know pick this apart but you know i'm asking that for that support so i'm taking on that karma to not have treatment or not be resuscitated or not be on a respirator so would you care to speak to that <laughs> uh you he's he he has to listen <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of karma, <laughs> not wishing to get in in the middle of a uh, two karmically closely related beings, but uh, no, th it's it's quite interesting that I in our <coughs> Vinaya rules, the the um, the third parajika rule of the of the, the of the four most serious rules that the um, the the third rule is about taking the life of a human being. And it's extraordinarily in intricate, both the, the text of the rule and the different ramifications, the different nuances of it. And um, I in that, there's quite a clear distinction between uh, choosing to end a life and choosing to not help extend a life. Mm -hmm. That they're, they're taken as very different things. So that, um, uh, and uh, I don't have the books in front of me, but uh, the, it's important not to blur those together. So just as Lumpur Cha, uh, Joseph was describing uh, how Lumpur Cha said, okay, enough of the doctors, leave it. <laughs> no, more, no, you know, no more tubes, no more anything. Let's just uh, you know, let, this, you know, let my life you know, run down as it's going to. So that was not an offense for him to, to say that. And it was not an offense, it would not have been an offense if the other monks in the monastery had said, very good, Lumpur. We we hear what you say, so um, we'll uh, we'll let you carry on in that fashion. You know, we we won't act. So that was not an offence for them to, if that was his wish, to not say take action. So in in a way, uh, and it's it's almost always the case that in in the Buddhist monastic discipline, you don't have sins of omission. Once in a while, I mean, there's a few little things, but it's once in a mostly it's to do with what what choices you make, the acts that you you take, so that um, that uh, as Joseph described uh, in that situation with Lumpur Cha, you know, the, the king and queen said, <laughs> "We want to make an intervention," and then there was this extremely extended and and heart wrenching debate that went on in the community: Do we follow Lumpur's wishes or do we follow the king and queen's wishes? And, and you know that uh, it was a very very difficult choice to make. So they made their choice. They decided to go along with the, the royal family's wishes, um, and uh, <coughs> so that in terms of, of say, if you've made a living will and you've had uh, uh, discussions and agreements beforehand, then uh, I would feel that that's that's completely fair. That if you say, please don't put any tubes in me, do not resuscitate. I was just saying earlier. There's a a um, an elderly English woman who, a very kind of average sort of 
<laughs> well, not obviously not that average, but <laughs> uh, but um, seemingly average middle class English woman uh, who has DNR tattooed on her chest. And people in her generation don't have many tattoos, <laughs> but do not resuscitate. <laughs> There's a tattoo right on her chest, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, she looks like a very average English sort of English lady. But uh, DNR, <laughs> because she has particularly strong feelings about no. <laughs> It's time for me to go. If, that's, if I, my heart has stopped, then please do not resuscitate. So, uh, to me, that's fair enough. Uh, I feel that's an individual's choice. And um, that I would encourage people to talk that through with their family and their loved ones. <laughs> Seriously, that, that's an important thing to, to walk through it and say, well, look, um, you know, to to your children. Well, I, you know, I love you very much, and I know you care for me. But this is something that I would really like. So I'm asking you to um, to to respect in this. So talking it through as much as possible, and then um, then that's uh, yeah, fair enough to let the the life you know wind down according to its own um, you know, you know, uh, sort of disposition and, and the condition that it's in. Obviously, the, there's all kinds of nuances and and um, the uh, the different elements of it, but in, in general, uh, I feel uh, that way uh, about it, and so that, and it, and it's also the fact that intuitively I feel that way, but it's also it is really reflected in our <coughs> rule. I mean, it's very very refined details about not encouraging, because as a monk, even if you hint to someone that it would be um, that that uh, to end their life or to encourage somebody to have an abortion. And then they act on it. Then your life as a monk is finished. If they act on that, you know, if if somebody um, commits suicide or somebody has a, a, an aborts a child on your advice, then that's it. Your your life as a monk is finished, and you can't be reordained. That's like the parajika means defeat. So that's it. So it's an extremely serious rule, and so that uh, there's all kinds of details that are are spelled out with it. But it's very clear that it's it's encouraging another being or causing another being to die. But um, the, there are difficult moments. You know, like when my father had an aortic aneurysm, and so then they he'd been he'd had a heart attack thirteen years before, and so when he was taken into the hospital, he blacked out at the wheel of his car, had a minor minor crash, and was helicoptered into the local hospital. Because he'd had the heart attack, they gave him blood thinners. They didn't realize that he had an aneurysm, so he was bleeding more copiously into his body cavity. When they by the time they realized that, it was nearly too late. So they called the family in and they said, uh, Mr. Horner is very poorly. <laughs> Characteristic English understatement. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, to my, my mother, my sister, myself were there, brother-in-law. So we could get the crash team in and we, we could take drastic action and try and, and open him up and, and patch the aorta and, and, uh, and see what we can do to, to fix him. Or we could let him go. And so then my mother and my sister both sort of turned to each other and said, I think it's best just to let him go. And then they turned to me. <laughs> and so that... Um, uh, you know, at that point, so here I am, <laughs> with exactly that that question, with my father, uh, literally li lying out there, 
And I, I said, well, if you're happy with that, I have that that's fine by me. Did your father make his wishes known? Was this a conversation that the no. family had beforehand? I, d I just had to ask. <laughs> no, 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 no. They never talked about dying. <laughs> but uh, but it was a, it was that it was a potent moment. But it was exactly that. But then when I look back at that afterwards, I have no regret at all. I don't feel as anything was out of place, and and that. And I was with him as as he passed away, and was you know, holding his hand, and he went very easily. And I think my sister had been a nurse for more than twenty years, twenty five years, so she was aware of what would go on with the the treatment, and 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 felt that it's likely he would be traumatized in that through the kind of invasion of the body, and and the likelihood of him surviving was was fairly small, by her guess. Yeah, but it was all happening very quickly. So, so uh, that that kind of looking at your own feeling and weighing, weighing it up, and sometimes you don't have very long to do that. <laughs> but to to really learn how to read your own heart is the most important thing in those kind of moments. So it just depended on the feeling towards it. It wasn't a rationale. Uh, for for myself, well, you're you're, weigh, you're bringing all those things in. Yeah, there was a, also my sister as a nurse, and then the medical people in the hospital. And it was a, a um, uh, quite a um, sophisticated cardiac unit, so that the people knew what they were doing. My, I felt I could trust my sister's judgment, but then it was really like, okay, what do I, you know, what do I feel? What what seems to be the right thing? And I, in those times, I th it's more important to come from that intuition rather than from a theory, or a, a, um, a list of shoulds, to me. Nick, 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 and then I hadn't seen I hadn't seen any hands, so make sure we see them. There, are there some there? Okay. Okay. Um, I hesitate a little bit to, to add my tuppence worth to this um, conversation, especially if after such strong uh, injunction, almost from Achanamaro. But um, I'm thinking about this act of agency. Um, we're talking here about a victim of some kind um, suffering an illness. But I'd sort of like to switch it around to the person who's making a decision which has uh, potential implications. And there's several sort of examples that come to mind. Um, when it comes to the Sangha discussing Ajahn um, Chah's uh, future, um, sitting here, I think I would have voted to respect his wishes. Sitting in the Sangha discussion, I may well have decided that for the benefit of the Sangha, it might have been better for him. To, to have his life extended. Um, sort of question arises, you know, whose life is it? Is it Achan Chah's? Is it the Sangha's? Um, you know, many benefits accrued from it. Whoever took that decision obviously has to reap the consequences. But I'm also thinking about it from the point of view of the individual within themselves when they have to take a decision which um, has potential implications. And uh, two, two personages came, came to mind. Um, one was Socrates. And the other one was Jesus Christ. Um, Socrates had a choice. Uh, he um, was condemned to death. He was condemned to death for, uh, he was accused of um, uh, leading the youth of Athens to immorality. He was like a conscience, one could say, for Athens. <coughs> and he um, was given some hemlock to drink. 
he had an opportunity to escape. Um, his friend Syro, I believe, said, look, I can arrange for you to leave the city and you save your life. And he refused. He gave three reasons. One reason he gave was because it would be fear of death and he wasn't frightened of death. The um, second reason he gave was that um, wherever he went, because he always spoke his mind, he knew he'd expose himself to a similar risk of being condemned to death for speaking his mind. And the third reason was that he um, respected the, um, <coughs> the, uh, the, the responsibility of, uh, that each uh, citizen has towards the laws of the state. And because the laws had condemned him, even though it was on one other level perhaps unjust, he decided to accept the condemnation. And so at that point he took a decision uh, to die. Um, and he drank the hemlock. The other example, perhaps uh, more pertinent to our Western society, would be the decision that Jesus took in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew they were coming to get him, um, and he took a decision. You could call it a moment of kairos, yes, that supreme moment of time when you suddenly have to take a decision from a perspective which takes into account a vast, much vaster picture than um, one perhaps could even think of, because it's something you just experienced. And he chose to stay there, knowing that his outcome would, be, would lead to death. And we know what happened to him and the consequences that flowed from that. There's a third example that comes to mind, and that's um, of a priest, actually, a, a priest called Father Colby, who was in a concentration camp. Um, I believe it was Auschwitz. It was Auschwitz. It was Auschwitz. Auschwitz hmm? one. And um, he was in, in, a, in a roll call, and um, I believe someone had tried to escape, and they were going to shoot uh, one of the members of the, uh, one of the prisoners in the, in the line there. And, they, and the officer, German officer, pointed out to a man, and the man pleaded for his life, saying he had a wife and children. I'm not sure that he actually said it, but I know that Father Kolbe, who was a Polish priest, knew that he had a family and children. And he decided to step forward and offer his life instead and said, look, shoot me and leave this man, let this man live. And the German officer um, uh, accepted this man's decision. And the priest was shot and the man with the family survived. And uh, he was actually um, nominated or, and, and canonized, Father Colby was. So I give these examples, sort of um, examples of, 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 of a human response to a situation which doesn't fall into the norm in the sort of vet's office in the high street or perhaps, but I think does have parallels to some of the decisions we have to take when we're looking after someone we care for, where a decision has to be taken about whether their life is preserved or not, or even our own life. So I'd like to go with Ruki and just say that in the moment we have to know what we do with the best of intentions, if it's done honestly, truthfully, with kindness and with respect. Whatever the karmic consequences flow from that are the right ones to flow because the decision at that point in time hopefully is the, the right one. So it's just a few reflections for consideration. Go ahead, get Kathy, then we'll come back to Prakeem if there's no one down here. Get your hand up in here. Um, I'm actually not wanting to comment on this debate, so if people's energy are still with this debate, then I'll talk later. Because I don't want to interrupt 
people's flow on, because I put my hand up earlier, but that moment's gone. Um, yeah, and I'm aware on. of what, what I wanted to share a poem. Uh, um, I've been practicing meditation for about 19, 20 years, since my teenage. And for any disease or any illness, the basic causes, um, the four elements of the body, the imbalance of these four elements. And as we spoke, uh, there's the fifth element, space, and then, as Agent Charles said, the sixth element being the consciousness. And we are all uh, aware of our beingness. So, and we in this retreat we have learned the point of deathlessness. So when we are talking deathlessness, again we are coming back to the body conscious level of being dead, uh, of saying not going for a treatment or not doing certain things. Again we are in the level of body consciousness. But say, for example, when we are going for a meditation, we are sitting down and our leg pains, what we do? We just change the position to a different position and then meditate. So the life goes on with meditation. In meditation, there is enormous of energy of these elements, of all these five elements or six elements in our body and transforms ourselves to the state of the beingness, just the I am. And and even Agent Shah tells us to just leave the eye as well and just be there. And he also quoted the very good example of the Muslim lady, the Amina, being in the monastery. Even though she was having cancer, the, the, the meditation and the environment healed her indirectly. So the process of one's own nature should be towards meditation and towards Nibbana and the, the state of deathlessness happens itself. In this process, if we go, that's fine. But we don't, should not deliberately take our position that I will sit in the position when my leg pains, I'll still sit in that position and absorb the pain and be with the pain. That's not the act of an intellect. So if one feels that should take medication or not, that's up to them. But still, the process goes on. You get automatically healed by, by, the, by the nature or the, by the universe or whatever we call. But... One causing deliberately something to one's inner self is again not advisable or not correct, according to me. That's all I wanted to share. Maybe, Kathy, if you wanted to say your piece. Mikhail. Okay, can you hear? Yeah. Um, I wanted to uh, say a few things and then um, I've written a little poem which I'm embarrassed to follow in the footsteps of T.S. and C.S. but um, I have written a little poetic reflection which I'd like to share. Um, first of all, I wanted to thank you both. Um, I wanted to say that I don't only feel a, a deep sense of appreciation for the content of what you're both offering, but the actual container or delivery, the cocoon of safety, I think, that you have um, built 
um, I think in which everyone has felt very safe to experience what they need to. Um, and the very obvious love and affection between you um, and the lightness and humour you bring um, has meant that for me personally, despite the subject matter, it's been a very light and joyful retreat at times. Um, and I was particularly surprised by the uh, exercise in the temple. Um, coming from a Catholic background, I think I had a lot of residual fear of the day of judgment, the reckoning, and that what I would feel would be enormous guilt or shame or remorse for all that I had not done. And in fact, what I had was a recollection of goodness um, and a real connection with that and a great deal of joy and peace. So that was a revelation to me and a gift. Um, and I also have found that uh, many of the things that you have said in a very down-to-earth way, for instance, about um, just accepting and surrendering to the way things are, um, rather than wanting them to be otherwise. And although I chose not to share it, and, and, and do choose not to share it, the death of my mother was a very messy and difficult time. It was quite a few years ago and I was aware of how much I was still carrying a lot of bitterness and anger about how it was managed, how things happened. Um, a sense of thwarted love or thwarted gift of something that should have happened. And I think during this retreat that I've really put that down, that I see that I have made my happiness conditioning on the bell that rang then not having rung. And it did ring and I can't take that back. And there's there's quite a sense of moving to a place where um, I can perhaps love her in a different way um, and let go of some of that anger. And um, uh, this poem, I think, has the spirit of, in Ireland, we have a spirit called Sheena Gig, which is death in life or life in death, a bit like Kali in India. And so I think she was with me uh, when I wrote this. So this is, um, I wrote this after walking in the woods, and it's called A Mossy Moment. <coughs> Seeking shelter from the rain, I find myself toe to root with an old oak tree. We stand in companionable silence, cocooned by sounds and water. All around rises the scent of peat and leaf. My feet sink into the soft ground. They are planted in perfect twin cradles of mud. I press a greeting into Mother Earth. Firm and steadfast, she welcomes me back. We are kin. All that is patient and enduring in her depths speak to my heart. We both contain and carry things that have been and things that are yet to be born. Who knows, one day when I am long gone into the earth, you, Oak, may breakfast on me. When my body's atoms are all unglued one from another and free to dance where they will, they may be part of that inorganic broth that laps at your roots and to be taken up to nourish your growth and those you shelter who chance your way. 
Overhead, the rain stops and the clouds part. A pale, shy sun appears. I raise my face for its quiet blessing. I stand, warmed to the core, poised between the gift of the in-breath and the release of the out-breath, between all that has been and all that has yet to be. Still, contented as moss on a stone. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Very lovely. Also, uh, as you were speaking, um, I, I was living before um, I moved back to Amravati in uh, coastal California, and they have these huge redwood trees. Mm -hmm. uh, some of these these beings are are very uh, very old and, and very large, so two, three hundred, four hundred feet high. Some of them, some of them have been alive for fifteen hundred, two thousand, two and a half thousand years in the coastal redwoods. They're, they're the taller ones, not quite so wide as the ones. Uh, in the Sierras, but they, they, these are the uh, taller but ancient, ancient beings. And a, a local biologist told me that most of the cellulose that goes up to make the, the fabric of the redwood tree is from atmospheric carbon dioxide. So it's breath. <laughs> <laughs> the carbon dioxide, in the, these huge ancient beings, they get their carbon from the, uh, from the carbon dioxide in the air. That's what makes up their cellulose. So their bodies a form of the air, air element. <laughs> and when you stand at the foot of one of these things, you get serious neck issues <laughs> looking up. And there's, there's some ancient tree that's been there for 2,000 years you know, that was growing when Jesus was still doing his, his thing in Gethsemane. That, uh, and you realize this is just crystallized air. That, that, that sense of, of sharing a life, and then when you breathe out, <sighs> that you're feeding those uh, extraordinary beings, extraordinary great creatures. So that same kind of awe and wonder when, uh, when you meet them. On a different note, uh, Victor. Who is Victor? Victor, oh, there you are. So Victor had a question. Uh, could you please say something about letting go without trying to let go? I think that's one for Joseph. Mm. <laughs> one must let go without trying to let go. The first thing that comes to mind, that was, I think, that's why I quoted Ong Pa in the mindful way, I believe, what he said. Yeah, Ajahn Chah. Uh, it was... Um, translating. I think they'd put a translator in, but then that moment that he said that, I believe in the mindful way, they left my voice in because they couldn't, it just like, it was perfect, so we don't want to mess with this. And that, so it was very interesting. <clears throat> oh, sorry, yeah. That was the first film that, that was, uh, that was the, uh, it, not, um, but it was the, Open University, yeah, BBC Open University. I think it's the first film they did about um, 
I don't know if it was Buddhism, but certainly about Ajahn Chah. And yeah, it was where you got it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me see if I can put together and quote the Master. Um, it was it was regarding desires. I remember it, and so the desire to be free is 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 better, or perhaps a more wholesome. And I'm paraphrasing, and I'm not any quoting anybody other than taking responsibility for my words. But as I understand it, as I had heard, and is that 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 there there is, and I I, I do believe this. That each of us has a desire to be free, to be whole, to be complete. And everything that this I does is, is an attempt for that. But we attempt it through all those things that ultimately cannot free us. So through the senses, you know, another pleasurable experience, another place, another retreat, another relationship, another good meal, another... Um, you know, racy affair. It doesn't matter what it is that we're kind of always going outward because just think our senses lead us outwardly, don't they? The eye goes out to see things. The ear goes out to hear things. And, and all of our senses are constantly, you know, grasping. So that tanha, and uh, Ajahn Chah used to say, tanha kwam ah. Why? Kwam ah. Why? He says, tanha, we have bhava to become Vipavatama, or first gamatanha, sensual uh, craving, and then the craving to become, and then the craving to not become. So the craving to get, you know, to hold, to have. So I want to have that form, that thing. Or I don't like it, I want to push it away. Or just the sense desire of just wanting to have. And he says it translates as, an, uh, as, a, as a perpetual open mouth. Ah, ah, in Thai. So we say, say, ah. And in Thai, to open your mouth is, you know, the dentist will say, ah, ah, tell you to ah. And why, why in Thai is like continuous. So he said, desire, tanha, translates as a perpetual open mouth. So I think of little birds when they're being fed wound, that does it ever get enough? The, the mouth is always up there. When we see little birds, it just, something happens and the mouth goes open. And, or like the hungry ghost never gets fed. So that's desire on that level. At the, at the, maybe it's, it's most refined to its most course, course. But the desire to be free is like shifting. You know, shifting that desire. And, and that's very, you know, tricky. But they, so it's the desire to be free from desire. But ultimately it won't be desire. It will be, it will be effort, one way of, of speaking about it. And so kind of putting it in that context, but letting go, I mean, his analogy is, is until I can realize the heaviness of what I'm holding, it's not until then that I can put it down. So my shoulders could be crushed with an incredible weight. And I know we can all, each of us can relate to that with this incredible weight that I'm carrying. And other people can see it. We have friends like this. We can see this incredible weight. You know, Joseph, let go. You know, you're, you're, you're suffering. What do you mean? You know, I don't, I, and I'm fine. And I'm trying to trudging on with my, my weight, you know, and my shoulders are crushed and I don't see it. You know, 
I mean, it's obvious right now that I've got something on my shoulders. And I might think I'm just walking along like this with nothing on my back. So until I recognize that, that I can't let go, once I do, it's just like the hot fire. If you're holding a hot, that if I throw you a hot red coal, and I said, Victor, here, try this. Just right now, if I had one, you weren't sure what it was, and you caught it, a red hot coal, how long would it take you to let go of that coal? A second? A millisecond? Not very long, right? Because you felt the pain. That pain goes and it will continue to burn. And, you know, if you could stand and say, oh, I'm going to show Joseph, I'm a toughie. You know, I, I can take this. You know, you take the coal and let it, you know, burn out in your hand. I mean, you could do that. But the point being is that, that it's, it's so intense. And so I think it has to get to that level of then we can, uh, you know, release it. And I think that gets subtler and subtler. So if I'm sitting, this is a wonderful one for me in my, in my own personal practice, is if I can refine, not trying to get it in, into a peaceful or jhana, you know, absorption, but sit here in this moment with breath by breath, and each thing that arises I know passes away. But also in the arising there's a potential to allow it to pass away, and there's a potential to let it go, and there's a potential to pick it up, moment to moment to moment. Everything, doesn't matter if it's sound, whatever the sense, or through the door of the, of the mind that we're having these perceptions. So I'm thinking, and a thought comes up, it arises, I have the potential, as we say, to proliferate, to embellish it, or I have the potential to let it go. So it's that moment-to-moment awareness that I can develop the good habit of letting it go letting it go until, until I begin to free myself more and more and that, that ultimately the habit can be to let go rather than to pick up. So if we start to see everything as, as I remember one quote, I'm not sure if this is Dhammapada or whatever, but <clears throat> that, that uh, the Buddha has said that nothing, capital N, nothing whatsoever is worth grasping at or clinging to. The Chula Tanha Sankhaya Sutta. So big on desire, that word Tanha comes up. So nothing whatsoever is worth grasping at, even to grasp or cling to. Nothing. Period. Full stop. There's no, and I mean, that's a big statement. And of course, I don't claim to be that. None of us do. But that's the kind of depth of, of letting go, isn't it? That it's not worth picking up in the first place. And I guess that's the last point. That if I don't pick it up, then I don't have to let it go. So where are you, or where am I, any of us, where do we pick it up? Because once we pick it up, then we have something to let go. If I don't pick it up in the first place, if I throw the hot coal, oh, I know Joseph's trick, and you kind of dodge it. It goes back and just falls on the floor. Ha <laughs> ha, I didn't grab it, you know. You didn't grab it, so you didn't have to let it go. Sorry? The the point that um, Joseph made about, um, and this is a, a comment that Ajahn Chah would, would make fairly regularly, to, in my uh, my understanding, where it says, until you know the pain of attachment you won't let go. Now, 
when when we say that, um, then it can still seem to be com uh, coming through as a kind of an idea. But it's more effective um, to just trust the power of awareness, of just knowing the, the, the pain of attachment. So when your mind is grabbing hold of something, and you recognize, oh, this is really stupid, I should let go, then there's an I and there's a should in there. And then we, we, we drop it, which is it's still good that we dropped it. <laughs> um, but rather than than um, d reacting in a in a way like that, what helps us to the heart to really let go from a more radical place is just when you feel that that there's that kind of clinging or grasping going on, just bring the attention to that and let yourself feel the grasping. Like uh, I even do exercises with this called conscious craving, <laughs> so that you. Uh, and this is how Lumpur Sumedho taught himself uh, back in Nankai. He would. Because he was reading all these, this, this one book about the Four Noble Truths over and over again. Nyanati Loka's book, The Four Noble Truths. Lumpur read it 80 times. <laughs> it was the, the one book he had in his little hut when he was a novice. Over and over he said, what is this clinging? What is this clinging? So he took an object. Like, he said, okay, now clinging. So I'm clinging. Now uh, what's this letting go? So does it mean throwing it away? No, so... Doesn't mean throwing it. Doesn't mean breaking it. Not clinging. But does it mean just like relaxing? And so he was teaching himself just by using material objects like a matchbox or a, a stick from the forest. And, oh, that's what clinging is. That's what letting go is. So that when we bring our attention to that feeling of clinging, rather than me trying to do something with it just to let that clinging be fully known. It's sort of conscious clinging. So you, you deliberately pick up that and you see the mind's holding it. So just stay with that and let yourself feel that fully and consciously. And uh, uh, at a certain point, something goes, oh, <laughs> I've had enough of that. Or why do, I want to do, why do I want to do this to myself? And there's a, a relaxation that's coming not from a place of I should or the right thing to do is or the Ajahn told me, but something in the heart goes, this is really heavy. <laughs> Why am I carrying this thing around? And there's a, 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 re a relaxation, a letting go that's just more like a falling off. It's like the force of gravity just makes it fall away rather than me doing something to get a particular result. Does that make sense? Down that way. Hi. Um, a question. In Belgium, everybody is uh, organ donator, if mm. he is that. Um, I'm very new in the Buddhism, uh, so I have so many questions. Um, what the Buddhism think about organ donation? If you are not one hundred percent that only clinical that, so yeah. the brain is that, but you still breathe with the machines. So, are you that or not? Can I just add that this is a choice that you make? I live in Belgium and I've made the choice. You have to register with the local authority if you are willing to give your organs. 
Is that, it was, it was he saying that it's an opt-in rather than an opt-out? Yes, you have to opt-in. And indeed, not sufficient people do opt-in. Do we must or not? Do we must uh, say, no, I don't want to give organs if I'm clinical death or yes? I, um, I just think there's, there's... I want to be clear, and then I because I, I'm a little bit doubting, because you're saying someone clinically dead... You can comment, but clinically dead, that, that one is, is, is dead. I'm not sure if you're asking about the organs as an intervention before things are dead, because I know organ donation has to happen very quickly for the organs to be viable, but I don't think that they're, they're, they're being cut open and, and harvested before the person is actually dead. So that, well, no, I, I'm just, I'm not sure on the gentleman's question. That's what I wanted to clinical make, if that was part of the, 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 the mix. No, clinical death is when uh, your brain don't have activity anymore. Okay. That's okay. clinical death. Okay, and, thank but you. But you still breathe. Your, your heart yeah. is still we, working. I think it's a machine. Hey, call me. That's all right. I think it's actually the machine that's breathing for you. So you're not actually, well, the body's not actually breathing. It's the brain that usually has the center to stimulate your breathing. Once that's gone. Yes, but uh, are you dead or not? Clinically, <laughs> 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 from a medical point of view, that, that's when we say, yes, you're dead. From a medical point of view. <laughs> Very humble, MD. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about the, um, uh, the the nuances of clinical death and actual death, um, but I uh, I'm very happy to donate my organs. So I carry a little organ donor card around with my passport, so that. Um, if bits of my body are useful to somebody else when, when this body dies, well, great. Very happy to be recycled. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that's usable. Don't, I don't, don't know that many people who would want my nose. but uh. <laughs> Yeah, but any, any, any bits that anybody can use, they're welcome to, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm not going to use it anymore, so yeah. why not recycle? It might be a, a good counterpoint here with me because I haven't yayed or nayed, you know, opted in. I've more, at this point, I've opted out. And, 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 and the reason, as best as I can articulate, it's kind of like an intervention to me. So even though that might save a life, that, that, and the organs are perfectly good organs, so it's kind of like, well, why should we throw away food? Because somebody could eat that food, and yet we waste food all the time. You know, and what happens, it just gets recycled back into nature, doesn't it? So there's a part of me that says, well, I just soon be recycled back into nature, or I'm making a conscious choice, so what impact does that choice perhaps have? And that's why I'm on the fence with this, like I say, well, take the heart or whatever might be useful to give to somebody else, which then is, is a modern technique. Fifty years ago, we didn't donate organs or however long ago when we started this. 
So there's a part of me, it's just like modern medicine and things, there's so many kind of questions that can come up. It's like, like I chose to have a hip replacement. So I now have a new hip, and I'm very grateful to have it because it was, it was excruciatingly painful. It, it was, the impact was such that I knew uh, that. So I chose that, that intervention. But then would I want someone else's heart? You know, and so I don't know, I have a choice to, you know, to take, say, if I'm on it and, and you get, people get on lists and things. I don't believe I would get on a list to have a heart. I would accept that the heart and the case it was. As I speak right now, and I'm saying this, this could change. So maybe that makes it a little, a little clearer that I wouldn't want to take someone else's heart for no other reason than I'm, that I'm, I'm extending that, which I'd say, well, if I have a choice, I don't want to extend. But we take Ajahn Chah, which Nick is bringing up in that intervention, and that maybe I'll have a clarity. Well, if I can extend my life and I you know, feel it's still useful and it's an unselfish choice, then that kind of weighs in. So, I mean, all of these, it's kind of like, when, 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 certainly when I start to reflect on that, there's one question leads to, you know, maybe more questions rather than, than answers. But I'm not as clear as Ajahn. Catherine is. Catherine's totally on the, you know, the organ donors. And, and so it's not, it's not anything about, you know, person, it's that more, I, I'm not sure if I've articulated that, that somewhat of a dilemma that I feel, but that's what I, that's kind of how it, uh, how I, I, I see it at this point in time. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Arjun, you're prepared to donate your organs. Mm -hmm. now, am I right in thinking that the Tibetans leave a body for certain um, uh, days before anything is, is done? Just, just leave them? Uh, uh, yeah. how that would... Well, there's different. It's a good question. Uh, it's, there's different understandings in different Buddhist countries. Um, so that there's, uh, along with uh, the kind of quote-unquote Buddhist <laughs> element of it, there's also local, um, say, uh, animistic elements or Chinese medical model that is influential in Tibet. The Indian medical models that are influential there as well. So I believe in in Tibet um, also because the atmosphere there is very cold and it's very dry. <laughs> So you can happily leave a body for like 49 days. Um, I think it's uh, at least for a week that they, they leave the, the body. Um, but um, in the tropics, uh, you, you, you burn a body within 24 hours for very obvious reasons. Um, so that, uh, that so, you know, so Thailand is a Buddhist country. I'm not sure what the practices are in Sri Lanka, but certainly until refrigeration happened, you know, it was customary and somebody died and you, you burn them the next day um, and so that the uh, um, th I would say those those practices of leaving the body untouched for a, a period of time they I feel they have a certain amount of value but I think you can also get stuck on the idea that oh, it has to be so many days or it has to be um, they, you know, certain rituals have to be performed uh, over the body I thought it was something to do with not traumatizing. You, you spoke of, of a consciousness that is there when um, somebody's in a coma, mm -hmm. perhaps. I thought that it was some sort of hovering um, something. Well, it, it is, yeah, that's, that's a very accurate way of talking about it. <laughs> that's about as clear as I think most people have it. Um, it's very interesting in this respect that in Thailand, um, if somebody dies suddenly, 
Like and in a car crash or if they... No, they're If I they die in a car crash or um, they, they have a, there's an accident, like they fall off a scaffolding on a building site or somebody is murdered, then they don't cremate the body. So the body is interred, uh, buried in the ground, and then uh, usually a year later, then the body is dug up and then it's cremated. And the understanding being that um, if somebody dies suddenly, then the, the consciousness can very easily get um, disoriented and, and not really being aware of what's happened. They don't, people don't realize they've died because it happened so quickly. So the, the local understanding is that if you keep the, the body there intact for a period of time, then they have a, the, the being has a chance to realize, oh, I'm dead, that life is over, okay, let go, move on. Um, and that if the body is cremated I immediately, then those beings are like much more likely to get stuck in a particular place. And, and uh, so that that's, that's quite a common custom, certainly in the northeast of Thailand. Um, oh, John, if somebody has donated their organs <coughs> and they mm -hmm. do die, um, mm -hmm. a, a frightful death, an accident, what, what is the situation? <laughs> I'm, I'm concerned about this, I think, because my mother died in a car crash. And um, I was horrified to, to discover that they had cut her open to look at her heart. I would never have allowed that, but apparently one has no say. It was done. Mm -hmm. so, so they did an autopsy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, um, for myself, I, I, uh, I can, I can understand that there's a sense of trauma, and it can yeah. seem very unnecessary in certain situations. Like if, like say, dying in a car crash, why would you need to do an autopsy? But there are all kinds of medical and legal reasons that countries have certain laws or thing, the things that are done, rather like Socrates, well, that's the law of the land, so I guess that's what you have to go along with, because this is the country I choose to live in, so this is the way they do it here. Um, so those kind of things, I've come across a number of things like that, and you feel like, why do we have to do that? Or can't we just sit with the body, or do they have to take the body away and then... You're like, well, that's the local ordinances, so you just have to go with it because you choose to live in Britain or California or wherever. So there's a certain amount, a, amount of that. I think in that, those respects, it, w when you're in those kind of situations, to, to spread a lot of loving kindness and to sort of share the you know, merit of your, of your life with that person and to, to send those kind of, um, uh, sort of uh, as friendly and helpful and soothing um, attitudes of mind towards that person so that they can uh, and to some extent buffer that sense of, uh, of trauma Nick's got a hand yeah. add something just to this topic. wait yeah, wait for the mic yes it's not a new topic just to add to what we're discussing because I'm aware of time um, there is often a discrepancy between um, clinical death and real death because although brain activity may be zero on all the instruments, there have been many instances where actually people do come back to life. Uh, to use that metaphor, if I may. So actually, we're in, I'd like to just add these sort of elements as of uncertainty. Yes, we, we, we don't have certainty. We know that deep meditators can sometimes go into a state of, of such quiet um, brain activity that nothing registers. Mm -hmm. 
and um, I know yogis can do it. And I remember Achan Brahms actually recounting the story of a student of his, which I don't know may have be of interest, who was a very uh, regular uh, practitioner. And um, he used to meditate. And one day his wife came in and she, he'd been sitting for so long that she was a bit concerned because it was longer than he normally sat. And um, she took his pulse, it was gone. And uh, she got very frightened, thought maybe he'd had a heart attack and had died. And uh, they sent an ambulance round and they shipped him off to the local hospital. And they were going to do resuscitate him using those, um, I forget those, the name of the paddles? instrument. Paddles? Yeah, paddles, where they give us an give electric shock jolt, to, to yeah. restart. The, but there was an Indian doctor on duty and he was a bit concerned about this. And he said no, because he heard the circumstances in which he had been found, that he'd been meditating. He said, let us wait. Uh, because there was no brain activity, and actually, an hour or so later, he came back to life. So I mention this just to sort of show that, you know, these stories about keeping a body around for, to let the consciousness leave at its own uh, pleasure or <laughs> displeasure, whatever the case may be, is just worth considering, uh, and just to add to the mix and the sense of uncertainty. Mm. I, I guess that brings up for me what would be the the most fearful, we brought up the question, what would be the most fearful way to die? And I'm terribly claustrophobic, so being buried alive <laughs> would be a great challenge for my practice. <laughs> Ed, Edgar Allan Poe comes to mind, waking up in a coffin. Can I just mention something about this week? practice, which has been quite profound and feel deeply grateful and thank you very much for all the lessons that have been brought. So I want to thank you both and the wealth of experience you both had. I was thinking 60 years, 70 years <laughs> meditating. So I had complete trust in the process. Even at times it was like, oh, I'm kind of feeling a bit um, rogue, kind of exposed and but anyway, but what I wanted to say was um, this, week, this week practice, which um, have been quite fruitful, I have um, worked to dedicate this hard work towards my grandparents who have passed away, my uncle and auntie who I love, and I think they benefit from those merits that have been, um, have been that I managed to work hard, even though it may not have been an easy situation or whatever. And I think they benefit from that, from those merits, from the hard work of the practice. So that's what I wanted to, to share. Thank you. One, one last um, story I'd like to, to uh, offer. Um, speaking not so much about brain dead, but brain death, but talking about people being in comatose states. Um, this came up in my, my mind a, a little while ago. Um, my uh, my grandmother, my mother's mother, um, was in a, a nursing home in uh, West Wittering, so close to <laughs> where Tony and Kathy live, down in, in uh, um, Sussex, and uh, close to where my, my cousin's home was. And uh, my mother lived in Kent, uh, just in the next county. And so uh, my grandmother had been largely comatose for the last four years of her life. And according to some of the nursing staff, she would occasionally wake up in the middle of the night and have very exotic conversations with the nurses. 
very uh, kind of strange and mysterious and uh, uh, colourful uh, little conversations. Um, but then the last couple of years, she was completely out. But my mother drove every week from Kent to go and spend time with her. Uh, and uh, even though every time she went, she was just at her bedside, and my grandmother was completely unresponsive. Um, she was 90, 91, 92 during this time. And so um, uh, she'd been in this state for quite some time, and then there was a, a mole in her cheek that started to get larger and larger and was obstructing her breathing. And so she started to have um, uh, lung infections and breathing problems. And so then the, the doctor who was m responsible for the nursing home um, uh, called for a family meeting and said, you know, Mrs. Goldsmith is, uh, um, has a you know, very difficult condition. It's hard for her to breathe. Um, if we don't operate to, to try and remove the, the growth in her cheek, then um, her breathing will be obstructed and she'll do her pneumonia will... will, um, uh, will take her, her life. If we try to give her antibiotics to, to clear up the pneumonia, she probably won't be able to survive the strength of antibiotics we need to give her. Um, if we, um, but if we leave her, then she'll probably pass away in the next couple of days. So what would you like us to do? Would you like us to try op to operate? Would you like us to try you know, heavier d duty um, treatment with antibiotics? Or would you like us just to, to, uh, to leave her to pass away naturally? So my mother was called into this, this meeting with her, her nieces and nephews and, and uh, sister-in-law. And um, so sh uh, this was a very difficult meeting, and so they, but they decided that we should just let her pass away naturally. So then my, my mother um, then went in to visit, to, to sit with my grandmother. So this is four years of absolutely no response whatsoever. Not, not a flicker of any kind of recognition. My grandmother turned to my mother, opened her eyes and said, thank you. And then closed her eyes and then she died the next day. So during all that time, the, the feeling that we had was that she was, she was there, she knew my mother was visiting, and was, could, but just couldn't get to the surface. But then this realizing, okay, the end is coming, realizing that, they, that, that this w was all coming about, um, sort of scrambled to the surface to sort of... <laughs> Just poked her nose above the the surface, just enough to be able to just give one little message, and then and then she went. So I, I, the, when when uh, the discussions about assisted suicide or value or, you know, quality of life or you know, where someone's at, where they're in a comatose state, yeah, that, that that comes very very vividly into the forefront of my mind, and that uh, I feel that we shouldn't make presumptions about where somebody's at when they're in the, those kind of states, and that there's can be a lot more going on than is apparent at the surface. So we can, we can uh, have a pause for tea and then uh, gather back again this evening. There was a few requests for different dedications for the chanting, so we'll, I'll read those out when we have the, uh, the chanting this evening and then we'll have the, um, the time for our more communal sharing after that.